in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, across town, Chad Robinson. How you doing, sir? I'm excited to be on the show today and definitely excited not to be hosting. All right. I, you know what? I detect that's as excited as Chad gets for those who don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm feeling the energy off of you and I'm, I'm feeding off of it. You know what we need for this energy? We need a new guest. First time guest. That's right. We have Kathy Hoskinson. Kathy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And I am so excited to be here talking with the two of you about an 80s movie, one of my favorite 80s movies. I am excited as well. Now, Kathy, just tell people at home, you've got an upcoming project that you want to tell people about. Let us know where we will soon be able to hear more from you. It's a podcast about the complexities of, of human behavior, the focus on mental health. I'm a mental health advocate. I'm an armchair psychologist. I, I'm completely a lay person, so you know, I'm not going to approach this from any, you know, from a, peer, a, a position of expertise, but going to talk about people, the way we behave, the way we act, how mental health issues, you know, are a part of pretty much every, every person's daily life and just explore it with kindness and compassion and also a little bit of uh, an analysis. And, and I think it's a topic that people want to hear about and they don't always want to, you know, maybe sit there and listen to, you know, a psychologist talk about it. They want to hear it, uh, you know, from somebody who, who like them is, is, is exploring it from a layperson's perspective. I think that's good to put it out there too. So people don't forget about it. It's, like you said, everybody knows somebody who's affected by it. We, we all are. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, if we, if we just tweak our perspective a little bit, I think, uh, a lot of what, is is plaguing us these days will will be a little easier to get through worked for dr fraser crane <laughs> right except for i won't be the doctor i'll be the you know and then i'm gonna fall back on that well i'm not an expert you know line anytime <laughs> i need to that takes a lot of pressure off yeah yeah for sure yep sure does <laughs> now kathy as we get into this this is a movie this is this is valentine's day season this is a movie that uh, has a great romance line in it. What is the best date movie that you would recommend for a new couple or just for any couple in general? What's a good date movie? Well, okay, date movie. Now, you, you got me because I'm probably going to go old school and only because I, I, I'm i going back to the 80s to recommend The Big Easy <laughs> with Dennis Quaid and Ellen Barkin. Okay. Because it's sexy and it was a movie that I saw with a boyfriend that I had at the time. And, and, you know, it didn't even get, I mean, it was, it got good reviews, but it was also people like to make fun of Dennis Quaid's Cajun accent. Uh, it wasn't that great. It wasn't spot on by any means. So it was no Rob Schneider and Waterboy then. <laughs> right. So that aside though, it was, it was, it, it actually got good reviews otherwise. And it was such a sexy movie and it was a great, uh, a great movie to see with my boyfriend at the time. And I have very fond memories of that, uh, of watching that with him. 
Big Easy. That's a good suggestion. The Big Easy, baby. <laughs> now, what is the last movie that you saw? So I haven't been to the theater in a while, but I, you know, I guess if we're talking about, you know, the, in the age of this pandemic, you know, watching a new movie means most of the time watching it on, uh, you know, some streaming platform. I saw The King of Staten Island, that new Pete Davidson movie. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did. I did. I did. I mean, you know, it's not my it's not my normal go to type of movie, but I'm very interested. You know, uh, Pete Davidson obviously has is has been very open about his uh, his struggles with uh, mental health. And, uh, you know, this is I think it was uh, advertised as being sort of a semi biographical and definitely about him, uh, this young man, this character uh, struggling with grief in being in, in being in a part of a time of his life where he just didn't know what he was doing or where he was going to go next. And, and so that piqued my interest and, and I wasn't disappointed, I have to say. And if you're a Pete Davidson fan, then it's, you, you definitely need to see it. I do need sure. to see it. Now, Chad, what, what's the last movie you saw? So it's Valentine's day season. Uh, so of course I've been hitting the horror movies very hard. And uh, <laughs> Session nine was the latest movie that I saw with David Caruso a very unique movie. I liked it a lot. It was set in an old asylum. They were asbestos cleaners. And man, it caught me off guard. It just made one of those lists of, hey, you should see this movie if you haven't. And that that was probably one of my favorites, along with 1981's Prowler. It was kind of a goofy slasher, but I just somehow that didn't make it on my radar. Very happy with them. All right. They're not all winners, so my last one was not really a, a winner. I've been picking up some 2011 movies off of Netflix, and uh, I watched New Year's Eve. Uh, and uh, Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I thought Valentine's Day was okay, and so I thought this would be equally okay, but this was, this was a number of steps down below that, and I did not necessarily have a great time with it, even though there were a number of people I liked in it. It's one of those scattershot stories, so it's not as good as Love Actually or, uh, or even Valentine's Day, so... Uh, I can't recommend it, but I did see it. Well, you got to, I mean, look, you got to love Gary Marshall, right? I mean, even, and this was, I think, the last movie he ever made, right? So I, I agree with everything you said. My favorite part of that movie was the closing sequence when they were all dancing to um, that pink song. Mm -hmm. um, Razor Glass. Yeah. Yes, yeah. like that was like the that was the best part of the movie that that closing sequence that does sound like the hecklers from the Muppets saying like you know what my favorite part of the movie was no <laughs> the end credits <laughs> yes that's that's where my mind went I was like you need to fast forward about two more minutes and then that's my favorite part when it was over <laughs> oh Stadler and Waldorf are my heroes so they are yes. they are indeed yes sorry Gary Marshall uh but uh yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do a much better movie than Valen or sorry, so we're going to do a much better movie than New Year's Eve here today. We're doing Agreed. Yes, we're going to do Chad, what is today's movie? We are doing 1988's Working Girl. That's right. This grosses 11.9 million dollars in the box office. It comes on 86th in the year. Not necessarily the highest. It comes in just behind Casual Sex with a question mark. Uh like I I think of Anchorman with a question mark on there. Like who put the question mark in there? I'm Ron Burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> Casual sex? And then it comes in ahead of Bloodsport, which, you know, if you want to hear a podcast on Bloodsport, check out Retro Movie Roundtable episode 44. Nothing pairs together like Working Girl and Bloodsport, if I, if I could say so. That's, that's a two-pack <laughs> made in heaven. 
The number one movie from 1988 was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. IMDb gives Working Girl an 8.6. Rotten Tomatoes gives the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give 84% to Working Girl. The audience doesn't like it as much. They give it a 67%. That's surprisingly out of balance. Now, the Academy Awards actually gave some attention to this. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Song by Carly Simon. And the Academy Award nominations, it got five of those for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actress, again, for Joan Cusack and Sigourney Weaver. And the Golden Globes actually did win four of them. So it uh, came away with some pretty good hardware here. It got Best Motion Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Original Song. Amazing uh, take the way from uh, the Golden Globes there. And then two more nominations for Best Screenplay and Best Director. And it had three BAFTA nominations. AFI's 100 Years of Passions put this at number 91. Here we go. Kathy, obviously, it sounds like you've seen Working Girl. Tell us your background with it. When did you first see it and what was it like? First, can I, I have to interject, and I'm probably violating a couple of guest protocols here, but this is sort of the tricky thing about when you have a movie that's released in December of the year of, it, of its release. Because your box office data doesn't... And I'm a child of the 80s, right? Full disclosure. I came of age in the 80s. This was... You know, this was a solid, solid hit, a really popular movie in the 80s. But the box office data is actually, if you combine a 1988 with 1989, because it, it was released on December 21st of 1988, but it ran into the spring of 1989, it had a worldwide gross of $103 million, which was a solid that hit. for so much more sense. Yeah, solid, solid hit for um, 30 something years ago, 31 years ago. And if you if you kind of combine the two years, it ran into the spring before it finally ended its, uh, you know, first release run. It had a rank of about 11 for movies released in 88, even though it played at fewer theaters than than others in the top 20 that year. So big hit and uh, definitely the hit the career-making role for Melanie Griffith. And to answer your question, I did see it in the theater uh, with some friends when it came out. And of course, we all, you know, we couldn't stop, you know, drooling over our Harrison Ford, right? Um, but we were all just uh, so impressed with uh, with Melanie Griffith. It was, this was a, this was, this was the definition of a star-making vehicle for, for Melanie Griffith. I mean, prior to this movie, she was, I mean, you know, she was known, she was the body in, in La, uh, Brian La Palma's body double movie. And she was obviously known for being sort of, she was a, to be Hedron's daughter and sort of a little bit of a wild child of the, of the late seventies, mm -hmm. early eighties. So she kind of, she was, she was known, but not known that well. Um, but this movie just skyrocketed her into, you know, just, a, just a list status. And, and by the way, she deserved every bit of that oh by the way for all of you guys listening this is dakota johnson's mom we're talking about for all of you you know millennials or generation z's this is uh dakota johnson's mom that probably does mean uh, more to people than saying related to tippy hedron so you're right <laughs> right yeah they're all like what what is she talking first of all what is she talking about who is tippy hedron and tippy's a very and strange name i've never heard it <laughs> no yeah so dakota actually steals the speech from this movie and it's in 50 shades of gray yeah she she does she does take part of it and by the way did i say brian la palma 
help me out. It was Brian De Palma. She was, uh, she was known again prior to this star making turn. She was, uh, she was the body in the Body Double. Fact checking the uh, box office numbers. You're fact checking <laughs> yourself. This is great. I we can we can really loosen up and be really inaccurate tonight, Chad. That is no change for me, <laughs> sir. Just wild speculation here. I can't help. You know, I'm a see. The problem is, I'm a professional analyst. Like not like psychological analyst. I wish. I wish I had gone in that direction. No, I'm a professional data analyst. So. Yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Yeah, so. We take opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> so we prepare for facts that may not be facts, but everything is true on the internet. That's right. Well, or you know, just prepare for you know data you don't you don't want to know about or you didn't ask for, right? <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. So, how long has it been since you have seen Working Girl? Like, was it fun to come back to it now? First of all, I always see Working Girl. I mean, it's one of those movies that if it's on, it can steal me. If I, you know, if I just happen to have the TV on and it's a Saturday and I'm not doing anything it can it can capture me so I, I i couldn't tell you the amount of times i've seen working girl okay so you never put it down for long enough. well i don't seek it out but it's you know it's such a it's such a great movie and it's always on like one of the like stars or you know showtime or hbo retro channels you know once every couple of years they'll it'll have a good run i think it's having a run right now and when it has one of its runs on any channel that i have access to and i come across it you know it sucks me in <laughs> that's a wonderful quality of a movie to just draw you in like from midpoint like it, it's going to be a different movie for different people but like when a movie hits that way for somebody it, it is special so i'm glad to hear that it's that way for you chad had you seen working girl before no and as we've discussed i've seen an appalling amount of romantic comedies this just wasn't one of them and i think it's because you know we my wife and I were both born in 84. This isn't listed as like one of the classics that you have to see. And so it just fell through the gaps of she's made me see all of the big ones. But this one? Nope. I saw Harrison Ford on the list. I was like, sure, I'll give this a whirl. Yeah. And, uh, and you got Sigourney Weaver. So you got Indiana Jones and Ripley. Yes. <laughs> yes. Can't go wrong. I, this is my first time with this one as well. I'm a huge Harrison Ford fan. And uh, it's one of those gaps in my Harrison Ford library that I had just not gotten to. And there was even an episode of Bob's Burgers that had a number of Working Girl references because the kids at school were putting on a musical play performance of Working Girl. And there were a number of jokes made throughout the episode alluding to this, and I didn't get them. And now I can go back and enjoy Bob's Burgers having watched this now. So I'm, I, I'm excited that I enjoyed this movie and I am excited that I can enjoy Bob's Burgers on that episode more now as well. So, uh, but I did have a good time with this. Oh my God. And it's so, it's got so many just great quotes coming from it. Great quotes and a lot of uh, uh, great cameo type scenes, you know. Chad, uh, I didn't get a chance to ask you. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a softie, so I, I tend to, even for a guy, like I tend to, I tend to have a soft spot for the, for, for, for a well done romance movie or, or a uh, rom-com but uh you did not say i'm guessing you're you're tougher on this genre than i am how did this one go down for you we kind of have divergent opinions on romantic comedies I, the ones i like you really don't and vice versa uh so you tend to like the more serious ones and i tend to like the more goofy ones this one this one kind of trended towards the more serious it definitely had some important themes you know, when I'm watching with my wife, my wife goes for the brain dead ones. So, so this actually, it didn't go over as well as I had hoped for her. And I think that affected my enjoyment a little bit. I still, I still enjoyed it. I would recommend it, but it's, it probably isn't cracking my top 10. Top 10 for romance movies. 
Yes. Oh no, no, that's <laughs> yeah. That's that list is uh, hard to crack on the actual top ten. All right, so uh, we will be back after these messages, and we will spoil Working Girl. So if you haven't seen Working Girl, you're going to want to go check the movie out and then come back after this. There are spoilers that lie ahead. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back, and this is your final warning. There are spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Chad, for those who haven't seen Working Girl since 1988, tell us about Working Girl starring Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, Melanie Griffith. Love to. A smart, working-class girl named Tess McGill, played by Melanie Griffith, quits her job as a stockbroker's secretary after being poorly treated by her chauvinistic bosses. Her staffing agency gives her one last chance and places her with a female associate in the mergers and acquisitions department by the name of Catherine Parker, who's played by the conniving Sigourney Weaver. Tess, even though she's just Catherine's assistant, steps out of her lane and suggests a merger deal to Catherine, who informs her the idea just isn't really feasible. However, on a ski trip, Catherine injures her leg and Tess, while humiliatingly house-sitting, discovers Catherine actually liked her idea and wanted to use it as her own. So Tess, not realizing how long it takes for someone to recover from a broken leg, decides to move ahead with the merger plans herself and contacts Jack Trainer, played by Indiana Jones himself, Harrison Ford. She gets blackout drunk off of two drinks at a party and unknowingly has a man carry her back to his apartment where she wakes up undressed next to him. She took pills too. Yes, she took uh, amphet- uh, antihistamines. If no, it was Valium, right. I think. Valium. Sorry, fact checking. I'm fact checking again, excuse me. Yes. Yeah, that's that scene really hasn't aged very well. But anyways, uh, at the pitch meeting, she realizes Jack was the man that she woke up next to and he assures her nothing romantic happened. The two of them work together to close a deal between the Trask Company and a local radio station. As Tess fakes it until she makes it, she and Jack crash a wedding in order to secure a meeting with Trask. Eventually, Catherine figures out what's going on and interrupts the closing, completely humiliating Tess, who leaves the meeting in shame. As she's cleaning out her desk the next day, Tess bumps into Jack and the clients, and she gets one last shot to convince Jack this was her idea, not Catherine's. Jack lets Tess and Mr. Trask talk in a private elevator. She shares how she arrives at her idea. Mr. Trask then asks Catherine, as they exit the elevator, how she came up with her idea. Catherine can't even come up with a lie. So she's promptly fired, and Tess is given an entry-level, air quote, position. She finds a woman in an office the next day and assumes she will be Tess's new boss. However, the woman, Alice, informs her that Tess is actually the boss and that she will be her new secretary. Tess calls her best friend, Cindy, to tell her she's made it as Let the River Run plays in the background. We receive a triumphant shot of people working in cubicles. Ah, the American dream. 80s corporate America at its finest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like New Jerusalem and it's just cubicles. I'm, I'm sad. I was going to say, working environments that. have come a long way since then, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Kathy... Tell us about, what did you like about the story of Working Girl? 
yeah, I mean, I like the fact that it it demonstrates that if you you can get over these roadblocks that are put in the way of people who maybe, you know, are of a different class, right, or a different station in life. Yes, I mean, it, it sort of promotes a little bit of like being sneaky. Um, I mean, there's a line that says, you know, y- you know, you can bend the rules plenty when you're at the top, but you can't get to the top without bending the rules. I love right? that line. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the one at the end. But, you know, I think it also sends, so it sends that message. But I think it also sends the message of, look, bottom line, she was smart. She was savvy. She knew her job. She knew her business. And that raw ability was going to be what ultimately combined with her gumption would get her out of, you know, her station and into one where she was appreciated and, and one one that she deserved. Yeah, this one often gets categorized predominantly as a romantic comedy, but I mean, Harrison Ford's character doesn't enter this movie until 35 minutes in. I actually think there's something even greater in play here. This is an underdog story. Like this is this yeah. is like in the way in the vein that so many other movies have a character who's just completely out of their league, but then they completely use sheer determination, willpower to overcome, in this case, even some pretty mean people who try to push her down whether it be uh it's a tough place for a woman in the 80s in corporate america it's still tough but i mean it's especially tough in the 80s at that point to try and move through a male-dominated field and on top of that she doesn't necessarily have the most impressive educational requirements she's getting a late start and you know she doesn't even necessarily have the support of her own community back home who don't necessarily view this as you know, what women do. And that comes across pretty clear in her other relationships with her friends as well as her, uh, you know, terrible boyfriend. So, um... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of stereotypes and there's a lot of representation of how those, why those stereotypes were so persistent. Um, and like to your point, I mean, her friends, you know, her, her, especially her best buddy, Sin, you know, what did she say? You know, this is, you're, you're, you're out of your league and you, you shouldn't even try to be right. Why not? <laughs> yeah. What was it just because I put on a, a bra doesn't make me Madonna yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and all I would, you know, all you, you know, if you're, you're, if you're hearing that you're thinking to yourself, or at least I would, well, if I can sing and dance, why can't I be Madonna? Right. I mean, that's, you know, it goes back to ability and you know not accepting your station and not being you know relegated to some stereotype yeah this was an interesting one for me because i have similar life experience to what tess went through where i wanted more in my entry-level job so i would learn and just start doing other people's jobs and i actually got called into the office and even though i was good at doing other people's jobs i got probably the most depressing speech of my entire career was you're a cog and a cog needs to do one thing and you need to do that one thing well and let the other cogs do their one thing to keep things working like but other people are bad at their jobs and i'm better at it yeah and i think the reason this this movie plays so well in 2021 and i believe that it does um, even though it's it's definitely an 80s movie and we'll we're gonna have to talk about hair and makeup in a minute um, oh we will but, oh russell will yeah <laughs> but the reason but the reason i think this plays so well is because you know nowadays you know you want to have a radio show you create a podcast and no one's going to tell you you shouldn't you know you want to you know you want to make money 
you know, create your own internet business and no one's going to question your education background. They're going to look, you know, you're, they're going to look at your results. And so it's, you know, we live in a results driven society because, you know, the, the, the playing field has been leveled a little bit. That's what Tess is trying to say, you know why I'm just as good. I'm in fact better. If you think about when she was the opening scene, when she was working for the stockbrokers that, that, you know, uh, Dave Lutz, the pimp, right. Yeah, with a tiny <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you're right. She was, she, you know, you could, it could be argued. She was better. She was a better stockbroker than they were. Um, and so her argument seems to be if, what difference does it make my, you know, yes, if I were entry level or if I hadn't proven myself with all this professional experience, then yes, you could say, well, you got your degree from, you know, this small school and you're competing with people who have a degree from Harvard. But regardless of any of that, I've been in the business and my results should speak for themselves at this point. You know, her, she was defiantly saying, why shouldn't my results speak for themselves? And I think that's why that plays so well, because in the eighties, you know, they didn't not, especially not in the, you know, the fine, you know, not in Manhattan, in the world of finance, but now more so than ever, they do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the first draft of the story, Catherine Parker was a man, which would just dramatically change the whole feeling of this movie. <laughs> I'm pretty. How was the Jack Trainer relationship supposed to work? Well, clearly that wouldn't have even been there. So it, it's uh, that that's that's one of those things that blows my mind. I can't imagine this movie going that direction. So I'm glad they made that change. Yeah, and what they did by making and I did I hadn't heard that actually, so I I, I thank you for giving me uh, access to this uh, additional trivia. But I think that having Sigourney Weaver play the the boss, you know, because there was a lot of you know how women how women were treated back then. I mean, great small part by Kevin Spacey playing just the sleaziest sleazoid, right? I mean, <laughs> talk about uh, you know foreshadowing. But um, anyway. You know, I think that having Catherine Parker be the younger, successful woman boss, younger by what, a month, added the the whole, you know, it didn't, it wasn't just always a battle of the sexes or, you know, the woman tries to climb, you know, climb out of the, you know, basement into the man's world because, you know, it was that definitely. And it was that there was quite a bit of that, but there was also just, just class warfare, basically. And having, you know, a female boss allowed the focus to be on not battle of the sexes, but class warfare. I'm guessing Sigourney or Catherine Parker was lying there. Like she says she's 30. She was 39 at the age of this filming, but it seems in character for Catherine to lie about that type of stuff. No, good point. Yeah. I, I, I wonder that. Yeah. Sigourney's one of those ones, kind of like Jamie Lee Curtis. It's like you just, you never look whatever age they're casting you for. She's got great bones. <laughs> yeah, although you know, to 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 her credit, though, she she looked thirty. I mean, I think that that I don't know. I mean, I think that's an interesting take, but I don't know that it was necessarily meant to to for us to think that she was lying. I think that she really was a month younger than Tess. I just think, you know, I think the fact that, you know, Sigourney Weaver was older just is a testament to how great she looks and, and, and looked back then. 
Yeah, the 80s hairstyles just don't do anyone a favor, too. I, I know Russell cited Courtney Cox quite a bit. Of She looks younger when she changes out of the 80s, early 90s hairstyle. Like, you lose five, six years. Yeah, like, you got older, but you somehow feel younger. Like, it just... Uh, uh, and it's not just the hair. It's, uh, you know, shoulder pads or uh, certain types of... You know, again, 80s corporate America, I think there's a mentioning of coming wanting to come across as masculine to hold your own in this world fashion was doing some some unkind things as well there were some mullets that we saw in the picture alec baldwin definitely hitting the yes. mullet. but i'm gonna hold off of some of these aesthetic things here and just focus on i really really like tess as a character i mean just the resourceful smart gem of a worker that's uh, competent and I love people who just stick it to the system and they don't take crap off of people. So I like that she knew that she was going to get in trouble, but she wasn't going to be walked all over. And I highly relate to that character from that standpoint. I'm sure Chad, who's been with me since seventh grade, can think of many times when I didn't necessarily take to authority very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, usually not to uh, lucrative positions, but more to detention. I've frequented detention, but um, but I didn't get walked all over. So. <laughs> you know, yeah, four strikes, you know, you got your fourth strike. So, <laughs> well, it sounds like you probably were questioning the system. I think that's that was a, a big, a big key to to what made Tess so appealing is that she, you know, I mean, if you look at sin, you know, there was an acceptance there. Right. She was more typical there was just an acceptance. This is my station in life. And, and Tess just wasn't going to, you know, why, why, why does it have to be that? Why can't I be judged on my output period? Right. You know, that was in the forefront of her mind and, and as it should be, you know, judge me on what I can do. Yeah. It's always baffled me in the corporate world. Uh, I've, I've helped a couple people get positions and I never cared about their degrees or whatever else. It was just aptitude. And the amount of bosses, even today, that still don't look at it. They look at, okay, well, they have this background and they have this. Like, but if they don't have the aptitude, if they can't learn, the the ceiling's so low for them. So Tess definitely had the aptitude. She was just raw. Yeah. You know, structurally, from the plot standpoint, I love how this movie puts you on a roller coaster. It doesn't just kind of go on the typical thing of like, here's dreamy guy. Here's an uh, easily overcomable miscommunication that then like we're going to sink into the movie. Then there's going to be a montage and a big over uh, over the top action to win her back. This doesn't this throws that template out completely and or that template hadn't been solidified at this point this movie puts you on a good emotional roller coaster Catherine is nice and she seems to be rescuing Tess from this this world and it seems like she's really excited about it but she's a backstabber Uh, but then she comes back from vacation and she seems to be on her side and she actually casts doubt in Jack by saying that he takes people's ideas and you know he's got some real ethical problems and I was protecting you and what we what we find out later is that uh, Catherine's just realizing that she flubbed up and has overplayed her hand here and uh, Tess is on to her, but she, you know, is still trying to take advantage of her, but we don't know that as an audience. Similarly, she's exposed and Catherine makes her look bad in front of everybody. And you just don't know, like, it doesn't seem like anything good could come of this. It's just an interesting thing. And even Jack seems to be after he cheats on her and and, uh, drops her, he gets his boat the loan to come through and uh i didn't quite get that at first i guess it was a ferry boat that could get like uh profiting off of that it was that kind of the notion off of that yeah yeah yep. i mean and that's just you're talking about not jack but 
It was the Alec Baldwin character. Mick, Mick, Mick sorry, Mick, 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 Mick gets you, his yeah. boat loan. I first thought I was like, okay, so you can buy a boat. Like you are a loser. But then later he's like, no, like this is a boat, and I'm going to make all this money. I'm sitting there going like, oh, I misunderstood. You're a fairy. Well, yeah, but but also, yeah, but the, here's the thing though. I think that that whole dialogue, right? So all of that stuff, the Staten Island portion of the movie, yes. right? You know, and and showing her on the ferry was so critical, right? It's the mur, you know, it's 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 her what transversing or whatever going back and forth between these two worlds one one that is she comes from and wants yes. to escape and one that she wants to break into and i think just so you know dialogue like that where you know the biggest thing that ever happened to mick he's working class right he you know if he can get a loan yes it, to your point it was a commercial boat that was the whole point about it it wasn't like oh i'm getting a loan for my you know speedboat so i can go i thought you know, that at first of, <laughs> you know mar, mar, off of martha's vineyard and you know hang out with my no 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 i mean like the big the, he's working class yeah. right that's the point and the fact that he could get a loan a boat loan that was the that was akin to getting a business loan right and that's like that's the biggest thing that happens to somebody out there blue collar working class you know you get a boat loan you can you know you've got equipment now to run your business right spider-man homecoming has ruined all scenes with fairies involved for me so it's just kind of waiting for vulture or iron man to show up with it i i like your analysis of the ferrying between two worlds but here i am teenage boy brain just like ha huh. Marvel, Marvel movies. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. that, and you're right about that. And I had that written down for some of my cinematography things. They make a real point of the fairy that she's entering this world that's not the world that she's from. But going back to this roller coaster that they put you on, she's fired and she's literally, she's at a low point when she drops all of her stuff. She's being humiliated. She's been sent out. And who knows what, she's lost her stability. Mick was actually somebody who would have provided stability in the world of where she was from. So she's she's kind of out on her own. And the world that she's come from is going to kind of not have a lot of sympathy from her. And so this is the low point in this movie. It's not an intangible, stupid miscommunication that was easily overcomable by a phone call. This is a real life situation and <laughs> you really feel for her. Like this is a real problem. She took a risk and it seemingly blew up in her face. And what came through at the end was an unpredicted, perhaps even naive thing in 80s corporate America, but her male partner stood up for her and said, nope, this is her idea. And she gets the credit she actually deserves in the end. And somehow that's highly rewarding. So that's just a real emotional roller coaster that this movie puts you on. That's many cuts above your, I don't want to say brain dead romantic movies that, but I mean, I, you know, it is, this is, this is a higher quality movie. Oh my God. It totally is. I mean, it, I mean, look, you could argue, I mean, the, the whole argument that this is even classified as a rom-com is a separate argument altogether. Right. Because they, all these, these, quality well-written you know character-driven movies that have substance right are, are oftentimes lumped into this chick flick slash rom-com genre because that's just how we you know that's just how it works you know people think oh that's a movie only chicks will like so it's obviously going to be a rom-com but to your point it's uh, please i mean the the romance is secondary i mean yeah even in the end does she get the guy yes but it's almost secondary she gets the job right. she gets she gets over the roadblock okay so yeah i mean i you know we could spend probably half half of this podcast talking about why you know this movie even being 
you know, relegated as a, as a rom-com is, 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 is offensive, but you know, that's maybe that's for a different podcast, but yes, to your point, this is, this is definitely not like a boilerplate boy meets girl, some, you know, contrived thing gets in the way of boy, you know, and girl living happily ever after, you know, roadblock is moved, boy and girl live happy, happily ever after movie. It's just not anything like that. Yeah. It's much more layered. I will say that that firing scene kind of took me out. Like that was a very 80s scene. Nowadays, after you know the phrase going postal, they don't let you back in the building if you are fired. You don't get to go and talk to your coworkers and clean out your desk at your own pace. There is someone, if they let you back in, you are escorted by a member of HR. That's you post are 9-11, man. That's post 9-11. This is, by... this is the 80s. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it was a very 80s. Yeah, and also, I mean, just think about it. She didn't actually work for Trasks, right? So she was in mer- mergers and acquisition at a firm that specialized in in, in that type of you know, corporate corporate takeover type situation or or mergers and acquisitions specifically. So what it showed, Trask, you know, what it showed was that no matter who you are, you you're only as good as your last good deal. I'm the deal. I'm the I'm the the big wig corporate client whose company you're trying to merge with another one. And so I'm going to have you fired versus I'm going to fire you, right? Because she that wasn't her boss. It was her client. Going back to this original script. So Kevin Wade's original script where Catherine was a man, uh, Jack is disillusioned and superficially of the business that he's in. In fact, in the final act of the story, he doesn't stand up for Tess in the elevator scene at all. It's Trask himself who decides to listen to her. And afterwards, he berates himself for not doing it and says that I should have stood up for you. Tess realizes he's become someone that he doesn't like. And the film ends with him quitting the industry and leaving New York to go back and get in touch with himself while she advances. Uh, I don't like anything about this original script. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. This is a whole other movie that's nowhere near as good, and it doesn't finish out as well. It doesn't start as well, and you lose the love triangle, too, because I really like how the – what a fun thing to realize that this woman that Jack needs to cut it off with is actually Catherine Sigourney Weaver's character who's injured, and when he says she was in a ski accident, you're just like, oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, come on now. New York has how many million people? Seriously? <laughs> I, I get there's some connection. It's, but... it's not a coincidence as much as you would think. Because remember back when Tess is at Catherine's house. Now, she believed Catherine when Catherine said, look, you know, I floated your idea around. Nobody, I couldn't get anybody excited, but I tried for you, right? So then she accepts that and says, okay, well, we'll try again next time, right? So then she, loca- she finds the, um, the letter on Catherine's personal computer at home. And wasn't that memo or that letter, you know, she said, you know, go, don't, don't, don't go, don't go to Tess on this. We're going to, you know, just personal memo to me. Don't have Tess type this up for you. This is something you're going to type up yourself and send the Jack trainer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So the memo was addressed. To, so that's, I think that's why Tess thought to, to go to Jack in the first place. So I think that there's, you know, the, the connection was already there. It wasn't just pure coincidence that Jack happened to also be, you know, uh, Catherine's love interest. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of uh, dumb rom-com movies would make the whole premise of like Harrison Ford not saying that he was Jack Trainer uh, into the whole movie. <laughs> and this was just but a mere turn 
in this movie, it was an interesting point where he doesn't share his name. And we as the audience start to get the idea that, you know, like we know what we know what's going on and it's kind of fun. But I mean, this is a first third of the movie where she doesn't realize it's him and now she's in an awkward position. And it's so much more complex than that. And so, again, this this is good writing. I, it came out of a horrible first draft, but it, what they finished with was great. Yeah. See, I, I thought that scene was very awkward because he was, Jack was pretty much implying, hey, I don't want to tell you my name because then we're going to have to do business. If I don't tell you my name, maybe we can have sex. And that was just such a strange thing at a business. I mean, maybe it works if you're... I think he's a little more gentlemanly than that. I, I think. They're portraying him to be so like, he could have slept with her when she was passed out, but he didn't. Well, well, no. I mean, in the future, he didn't know that was going to happen. But it was clear, like, if I don't tell you my name, maybe we can hook up. And maybe that works if you're Harrison Ford. But I just come from my world. Well, I think I think it was because, you know, I think the, what's great about the, the Jack Trainer character is that he I mean, apart from just being Harrison Ford and he's appealing just so physically appealing the appeal is that his character is ethical right and it is it was established that way from the start i think the whole thing with i don't want to tell you my name is because he said you know when he first saw her from across the room you know the the visual right so she's in this you know gorgeous sort of six thousand dollars it's not even leather right but high high end right (laughs) yeah but she's so she's in this high end very beautiful dress, right? Not not a, you know, like a sleazy club dress, but a really nice high-end cocktail dress surrounded by all these drab, you know, gray olive drab type business suits. He looks at her from across the room and, you know, you just, you know, in that scene without him saying a word, this man, he's in a rut. He's in a big corporate rut and he just is so tired, you know, and, you know, the background conversation is, you know, the, the, the three colleagues he's talking to, talking to are like, oh, yeah, we got to, you know, we got to, you know, make this next deal. We got to be killer. And he's just like, oh, God, please, you know, get me out of this. And he looks across the room and he sees this beautiful person and he's just like, oh, you know, it's like crossing the desert to find this you know this 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 puddle of water and when he goes to her and he finds out that she's a business person looking for jack trainer he's disappointed well he's also he's also like i cannot let the business world infiltrate this this fantasy that i'm having right now so i don't think it was so much a manipulation right? That's my point. I don't think it was a manipulation. I think it was designed to show that he just desperately wanted this pure fantasy to continue for a few moments longer. I guess he does point out, he's like, you're the only one dressed like a woman. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, as Kathy just said, everybody's, it's the eighties. Like, I mean, women are in corporate America are kind of they have like these football player pads on and like there, there's this toughness almost to it the, to try and gain presence. And honestly, given where the social climate was at the time, it makes sense. But it doesn't necessarily yep. – it's not – I don't think people are pining to go back to the 80s for fashion uh, as much uh, – not this part of the 80s. <laughs> yeah, and I think it and I think it makes that scene makes a very important point that if you were living in the 80s, I mean, I was young, right? I wasn't I was still in college. I wasn't really in corporate America, but my mom was. And my mom, right, commuted from our house in Northern Virginia to Washington DC with her her suit, right? And her sneakers. Because that's what all the gals did when they rode the train. You know, they didn't want to mess up their heels, so they had their sneakers on. And the point that I'm trying to make is that back then, the only way women were successful 
is was to dress a certain way in corporate America. And when I say dress a certain way, I'm talking about dressing like, you know, a little bit like a man, yep. which is which is why Catherine's character was so interesting. Right. I mean, she she didn't dress that way. I mean, you remember the cocktail party with the, you know, the little red dress, um, dim, the dim sum. She didn't she didn't dress that way, but she was definitely, definitely upper, 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 upper class. And you could tell she had, you know, she probably had, you know, degrees from every Ivy League, you know, school there is. And, you know, you could just tell she was privileged. So she was privileged enough to be able to step out of that. But the, you know, the sort of middle management types, you know, if you were a woman and you wanted to make it and you didn't come from a place of privilege, you needed to put on your little suit, (laughs) you know, with your subdued makeup. And you're, you know, no garish jewelry allowed and you needed to present yourself like a, like yeah, a man. Yeah. And I think this movie just does a yeah. good job of giving you a window of a back end of that. So you're right. We have come a long way. We still have a long way to go. But uh, this was an interesting uh, window back into that world. Now, in terms of the acting, it's interesting. Melanie Griffith, by far the lead actor, but she's third build on this one. I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, you know, just the weight of Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver get the top two billings. So. Yeah. As you mentioned, this was her breakout, and uh, she had come off of Body Devil. And 20th Century Fox wanted a big-name actress to play Tess, but Mike Nichols pushed for Griffith until the studio ultimately gave in. So Mike Nichols, uh, you know, other there were other considerations along the way. I've seen the names that include Michelle Pfeiffer, Diane Lane, Sarah Jessica Parker, Brooke Shields, a number of other people. But uh, Melanie Griffith somehow captured the, I guess, the gumption and like the spine of this character really liked how she played the role kathy what about you oh my god yes she was everything and i just have to say by the way wasn't it wasn't that just the genius of mike nichols i mean that's what he's you know what what he's renowned for is his ability to to understand you know first of all how to get the best out of the actors and and to know which actors are best for the part you know i mean he you remember he directed an, an unknown dustin hoffman in the graduate So, but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, she was, there was no, there's no other person for Tess. I mean, it it was, she was, she was, she had that gumption, but she was soft and beautiful like Marilyn Monroe, you know, and she had the, she had the baby voice, but she, you you just, you didn't question for one second that she was very smart and very capable. Uh, You know, just, I can't imagine any other actress playing it after watching the movie. Um, I, I, you know, certainly felt that way at the time. In fact, I remember, you know, they, they came out with a uh, working girl, the series, it was just panned across the board. I never watched an episode of it because I just, first of all, it was an unknown Sandra Bullock playing Tess McGill in hmm. the series, the follow-up series. And it wasn't even intended for her. It was intended for Nancy McKeon. Remember Nancy McKeon from facts of life? I know now. <laughs> Yeah, she 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 couldn't do it. And they found, you know, Sandra Bullock, who was nobody knew who Sandra Bullock was at the time. But the whole thing was just how what? No, there's no other Tess McGill. This was Melanie Griffith's character start to finish. She did a great job. And she was she was just the perfect contrast to Sigourney Weaver. She was the perfect contrast to to the robots, corporate America robots that she was interacting with. Not only um, in, you know, uh, Petty Marsh, but also in all the other corporate uh, locations and also at, uh, with the stockbrokers on the exchange. And she was also the perfect person to transform from this, you know, big hair, blue eyeshadow, Staten Island. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, woman to this, you know, Park Avenue, you know, simple, simple hair and makeup person that she became while still keeping this essence that that only Melanie Griffith could bring to the part. I mean, I can't even, I don't even really know how to explain it, but this was her role. I mean, there's, there's just, there's no other question. See, I'm giving Mike Nichols half credit here because you're right. Melanie Griffith was a great casting, but he also tried to cast Alec Baldwin as Jack Trainer. No, thank you. And he lose he loses points <laughs> majorly for that. Thankfully, the studio stepped in and there's like, you are not casting two no names for the starring role. Go get a big name. He's like, all right, we'll go get the dude from Indiana Jones and Star Wars. How about that? Is that big enough for you? <laughs> yeah. said, okay. And isn't it funny that, you know, we have our two, um, oh my God, what's his name? The uh, Patriot Games. Harrison Ford. Oh, what is the name oh, of Jack that Ryan. character? No, but what's the name? Of, we have our two Jack Ryans, right? Yes. And I mean, that's, yes. you know, that's actually I didn't great. Realize you know, that. it's, that's good. You can tell. Yeah. And also, I mean, here's the thing with Alec Baldwin, right? To his credit, you know, he's Mr. Oily, you know, Oily Bohunk. You know, that's a that's a nice shout out to John Hughes and 16 Candles. But um, he's this Oily Bohunk. But he could have, you're right. I mean, he wasn't the right person for the, for Jack Trainer, but he could have pulled it off, I think. And, you know, this was just a couple of years ahead of uh, run, uh, uh, Red October. Fair enough, though. Alec Baldwin was yeah. so good at being this horrible guy mick which if, if this movie lays on anything a little bit thick is that mick seemingly has no redeeming qualities to him at all like he's awful like he even got caught cheating like literally like very harshly and he's just like you're home early like that... right it was with one of her friends and it just yeah like i was just like this guy's awful and like he's like even earlier he's like yeah yeah yeah. pizza's cold like i mean he's gotten he, he he doesn't exhibit anything of of any value. So the fact that she almost kind of like is even entertaining being nice to him again, even if her friend asked her to do it, I was sitting there going like, no, no, no. Yeah, that, that was the worst proposal I've ever heard. Well, yeah. and He just keeps yelling at her to say yes. It's like, yep, that, that works with every single woman I've encountered. Just scream at them until they say yes. Well, but I think, but that, and it probably doesn't work with any woman you've no, encountered, but I think it is a good, te- it's, it's right. But I mean, t- if you think about back then in Staten Island of the eighties, women were sort of expected to just kind of put up with dudes like that. I mean, even if you think about Doreen, right, you know, um, the guy that, you know, the, the gal, she, he was sleeping, you know, he, she caught him in bed with this chick Doreen, right. And no, she's very pleased with herself. She thinks she has a cat. Yeah, she, exactly. She's like, she's, she's not even horrified at this man's behavior and she's with him back, you know, farther down into the movie when Sin finally gets married, you know, she's his date, you know, and it's just like, I think it, it, it speaks to the time and also the, I hate I hate to keep trying to say class, but that class of, you know, that working class sort of culture back in, in, in the eighties in Staten Island, women were just supposed to tolerate bullshit that, right? Excuse me. Um, you know, even sin is saying to him, you know, it's not like you to not give him a chance to make it up to you. And she's like, uh, <laughs> hello. I walked in on him having sex in our bed with somebody else and you're just you're acting like I'm being unreasonable at this point. And I think that that's that was a that was a huge statement about the way things were for for women in that particular cultural group. Nope, that's absolutely right. And I it, but uh, so they laid it on thick in some ways. But to, to your point, and you're making me sit there and say, 
uh, maybe it's not as thick. Maybe it's thick by today's standards, but even if you put yourself back then, maybe it's not as much of a two-dimensional character. So one of those other Staten Island guys back there was David Duchovny in, in the uh, wedding scene. And so this is his first <laughs> film screen uh, debut, and he's rocking a little, a, a little mini mullet. It's not as fierce as the Alec Baldwin mullet in this one, but uh, I like that we, uh, we get our first glimpse of David Duchovny here. Yep. Yes, indeed. Lots and lots of good cameos. <laughs> and did you mention Melanie Griffith was a bit of a partier? She and Alec Baldwin were uh, did cause the the production some trouble. They were partying in Manhattan late one night and wound up showing late for the shooting the next day, visibly intoxicated. And Mike Nichols, the producer, and uh, Douglas Wick, uh, producer Douglas Wick, were so freaked out that they decided to take drastic measures and they started fining Melanie Griffith eighty thousand dollars. And they made a nurse stay on hand to make sure that uh, she had her sobriety. Uh, intact for the remainder of the shoot so uh in fairness there's a lot of money particularly with new york film locations and stuff like this it it is not fun if somebody shows up to work and then they can't perform there's a reason why Lindsay lohan stopped getting work <laughs> and she made a pass at alec baldwin too he wound up turning her down but uh yeah it sounded like she was just kind of disruptive so they kind of had to give her the des bryant babysitting routine but it still didn't show in the in the end product i guess they got it under control no. at one point so i mean uh, i don't i don't particularly detect sloppiness in any of the performance so no not at all chad what about the director mike nichols here you you uh you were not on the graduate episode uh but uh are you a fan of mike nichols the director and of his work here i am going to have to duck because i know there's a lot of famous films in here who's afraid of virginia wolf catch 22 charlie wilson's ward cage i have seen i have seen none of them so the graduate you've yeah. seen the graduate right yes i have and i like it quite a bit more than brian fry so <laughs> I, I i do like that it's it's probably wrongly billed as a comedy and it's very frustrating given my last name uh, my wife had that stupid song sung to her quite a bit but you know it's I. It's a good movie and definitely recommend it. Other good Harrison Ford movie that comes three years after this one is Regarding Henry. I haven't seen it. It's a touching movie. It's a, it's a good one as well. So, um, but uh, okay. So smaller sample for you, but do you like Mike Nichols yeah. as a director here? Yeah. the The only thing, and I don't know if it was just an issue with. So I purchased this off of Amazon to watch, and it had some weird cuts. Like there was one specific one that sticks in my mind of Tess was trying on lingerie for Mick and she's talking about she wishes she could wear something else. And it just abruptly cuts to the point where I thought, is there something wrong with my movie? And I rewound it. My wife was probably thinking I'm rewinding it for entirely different reasons. But then the, sec <laughs> the second time, it's just like, oh, that was that was a weird transition. And there were a couple of those. So I. I raised my eyebrow of, is this just an Amazon issue, or is this actually how the movie goes? Is that your excuse for the uh, vacuum cleaning naked scene as well? <laughs> no, no, that did not get rewound. Okay, okay, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was, she was in lingerie and underwear a lot. I, I don't know if this was 80s and they're just trying to give something for the men to watch as well, or or what what that was maybe there was a broader more important meaning for that but yeah I don't know. um kathy what about you where, where, where are you and mike nichols as a director oh my this is more he's more my 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 scene right um loved the bird cage uh regarding henry 
my big things, my big favorites were the graduate postcards from the edge and working girl um, and heartburn because I love Nora Ephron anyway. And this was basically based on Nora Ephron's uh, marriage to um, uh, the Nixon reporter. Oh, what's his name? Woodward and Bernstein. Woodward, Bob Woodward. So loved heartburn. And I love that he, you know, Mike Nichols has, was famous, sort of famous for building relationships with, uh, with actors um, and use, and working with them over and over again. And two of my favorite Meryl Streep movies, uh, Postcards from the Edge and uh, the, the Nora Ephron movie, Heartburn, sorry. And they, you know, so two of my favorite Meryl Streep movies happen to be Mike Nichols movies as well. I'm rapidly becoming a fan of his. I've, the, uh, the ones I've seen, I like, he does have a good tendency to tell a good story with a lot of emphasis on the characters and develops those characters very well. And that is good storytelling from the director's standpoint. And I don't think of him as a guy with a style, but I do think of him with a very strong ability to convey character in his work. And to your point, uh, you mentioned earlier, Kathy, I think he gets the right butts in the seats for, for who to, who to embody these characters. So I really do agree with you. I think Mike Nichols is uh, great. And I, I want to dive in more on some of these. Some of these that you're mentioning, I, I've not seen some of them myself and I want to, I want to go farther. Yeah. I mean, I can, I mean, I recommend pretty much, I mean, obviously the graduate, um, but you know, any, any, any member of his, any movie in his lineup and, you know, people forget about the movie that was sort of based on um, Clinton. Charlie Wilson's war. No, no, no. The uh, primary colors. It's uh, it's timeless because, you know, it's still it's the same, you know, talking about issues that are still, you know, very much in the minds of people today. I did think that Nichols did a good job, to your point, of capturing the Staten Island versus Manhattan differences, as well as the high society that Catherine was in at her apartment and Tessa's world. So I think that he does a really good job of staking out the different environments, the pit that she was in uh, working uh, with Oliver Platt's character in the beginning. I liked the yes. th the wedding that you see, that the, 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 sorry, the uh, engagement party scene uh, that you see. You really see that Staten Island world that she's in. And to your point, and you stole it from me, I, I, was, I was really proud of this one, but you, you, you came out right away with this one. You're right. Mike Nichols really lingers on the ferry. She's working, studying on their way home from that. She's looking at the city in inspiration. And, uh, you know, even as she's thinking, Link, she lost her job, they show the they show the background fuzzed out as if it's fading from her and she's lost this as she has to go shamefully back to the Staten Island. Uh, and they use it as a transition part so many times. And, you know, you're probably sitting there thinking like, man, like this guy likes fairies. But it, it has a lot of it, that. That is, to me, one of the biggest directorial style changes in and tools that he uses in his bag on this one. Oh yeah i mean it's her transport between the two worlds and it's it's just it's so it's so beautifully uh visualized and i may have misunderstood because it was the beginning of the podcast but when when they at the end when they pulled away right uh, from tessa's window right from the, her office window and you basically saw you know that she was one of what a few hundred windows in this very large skyscraper tall skyscraper in 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 manhattan um, i think there was i think chad made a point about you know just just another run-of-the-mill cubicle but i think it was that was saying something different she she finally has a window yeah. right she never had a window before she has a window now Right. So that's what that scene told me. Although I agree, I agree with, with Chad about how it's like, oh, yeah. 
So I was like, oh, don't suck me into this, you know, this robotic mess that these people are, you know, 50 hours a week. I think it it was just this triumphant song scene about New Jerusalem with a gospel choir. And I see cubicle and I'm like, oh, this is crushing my soul. (laughs) I get it. Glass ceilings have been shattered, but (laughs) your triumph is four walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I mean, I think I think the key there. I agree with everything that you say, but I do think the key there is that she got, she got a window. Yeah, that used to be a big deal. Like now, offices again, they're they're, they're much kinder to their workers. The workers valued more now. But uh, coming off of the fifties, sixties, seventies, and it's still around in the eighties, things are very hierarchical, and you can see that throughout this movie. Like, look at the room that the Orrin Trask is meeting in, and compare that to like the pit that she's in at the beginning of this movie or that uh, Joan Cusack where she receives her phone call at the end of the movie. It's it's quite contrasting. And to your point, Chad, I don't think, knowing you, and you're not a big fan of this absolute vibrant energy that Manhattan has, and so you see the people moving through and uh, at a very rapid pace. So this is kind of a magical uh, fairy tale-like for the rest of the country, uh, not so much the rest of the world, uh, but the fact that you get to work on a boat, a subway, and there's that many people, it's not typical of the American working experience. And there is something almost romantic about it. And Mike Nichols does use that as an elevated device in this. So, uh... Oh, man, I've worked for a New York company with New York employees. And the culture is, like you said, it's very, very different. Their scheduling is different. How they approach the workday is different. And it just... With the Pittsburgh culture of working, it is just butting heads all the time. So that style and that workflow is just, it's almost traumatic. Yeah, I I, I was going to say, I I hear the discomfort in your voice. It's like a chair you don't want to sit in anymore. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I left that company for good reason. Yeah, and I mean, didn't you, and just speaking, I mean, this is sort of not really related but it sort of is but i just loved the whole jungle atmosphere of the stock exchange right that whole the the, the open the, her where she worked in the opening scene yeah cutthroat jungle you know chaos uh, every man for himself it was just so so very well portrayed with just a what two minutes of film <laughs> you know? transitioning into location a little bit though as we keep talking about these things i i, I really liked seeing the skyline with the Twin Towers in there. It's prominently displayed. Like, you will never see New York again in that way. And while this movie is a good still frame of culturally corporate America at this time for for women, it's also a great snapshot of New York at this time because New York has changed, continued to change and evolve. And uh, just to see that skyline at this point in time, I always love seeing prominent cities of which New York is at these different points in history and it really has it really has evolved so that was fun too yeah i mean they even used the world trade center lobby Mm -hmm. so you get to see that yep for one of the last times it was a great uh, a great snapshot of of a time of a time that uh, is very much gone (laughs) for sure now that was the good news the bad news is can we talk about the hair a little bit here? Uh, Kathy, you were there at the time. Like, I mean, do you have a more sympathetic view on these things? Or is it just Staten Island took this 80s stuff and took it up to another extreme? It was 80s Staten Island style. 
Um, and I mean, I love, yeah, so we didn't all, I mean, I, you know, in the 80s, I was in Northern Virginia, technically, which is part of the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So I was in the suburbs of, uh, of D.C. And we certainly didn't, I mean, you know, we had bigger hair. <laughs> and yes, we, our makeup was a little bit different than it would be today. But no, that was Staten Island's uh, take on the 80s. And I loved the contrast and how it was woven into the, into the script, into the story in in subtle but very effective ways just that conversation between Catherine and Tess on her on Catherine's first day you know getting to know each other you know I'm I'm not you know I'm not in a meeting I'm I'm unavailable or whatever she said oh and by the way you know we, we have we have a we have a uniform yeah. right and she didn't say you're garish you look like you just fell off the boat you know she said it more you know more effectively and more subtly you know, how do I look? You look great, but you could rethink your jewelry, you know, and that scene was so telling. And then she goes into the, you know, into the bathroom where, you know, this is not the executive restroom, right? She's back in the bathroom with all the secretaries, right? And she's pulling her, you know, wiping off her makeup, pulling her jewelry off. And, and there were multiple scenes like that, that really showed, you know, effectively how she was crossing over from one class to another by simply changing the way she presents herself. There was so much visually in this movie, like I said, about how women had to present themselves in corporate America, how lower class, you know, working class women presented themselves versus, you know, executive women in corporate America, you know, just it was just visually so wonderful. And, you know, you think about all the scenes that talked about her evolution into this corporate, you know, understanding what she needed to do to present herself differently. The, the scene about, you know, where, where you were talking about, it's not even leather, <laughs> yeah, you, know? you know, she picks this, she picks this dress and, and sin is like, there are no bows. Where are the bows? And she's like, no, it's, you have to, you know, it has to be simple, elegant. I just, I, I just appreciate how effective those handful of scenes were in in helping us understand um, how important how she presented herself was to what she was trying to accomplish. Now, Chad, uh, I, I I know for for you and for I, this is more of a jolt. Like the cool stuff, like like even once she's simplified, it still seems it still seems like a lot by today's standards. Like I mean, we look at Catherine, who's just like the the pinnacle of style. Like she walks in a room and commands all the attention. And or, or even like I thought the ski gear and stuff like that and everything that she had like on a ski slope, like this is all state of the art. And I'm sitting there going like that is that's a really goofy ski get up, you know, <laughs> so like um, but it, what from from a modern day standpoint of just getting this now in 2021, what is your take on the aesthetics of all these things? Like, how does it feel like it's playing for you? I mean, for me, I kind of enjoyed it because I knew how much it hurt you. So <laughs> I, I'm watching this with glee, like, oh, Russell is twitching wherever he is watching this movie right now. It's just one synthesizer away from doing you in. <laughs> and I, I never got that. But uh, the soundtrack was actually pretty good. We'll talk about it in a second. But yeah, I mean, we've said it all about the 80s. It's it's not great. It's not a not a great fashion time and coupled with the staten island aesthetic like just not enjoyable you can mock it a little bit it's ridiculous what people went through at that point in time you know the high hair and everything my mom just did the perm but uh, that was her 
lasting effect from the 80s. But yeah, the the huge hair, the ridiculous makeup, particularly on Sin, um, you know, the bangles, everything. Just, it's loud. The 80s were a loud time. I just think it's one of those things where I think it's really funny. The the, the people at the top or the the cool, like like cool, expensive 80s stuff to me still doesn't seem very cool, chic or anything like that. You go back to the 50s and 60s, like high end corporate America then seems very, very dignified comparatively. And it still seems to hold up in some ways. But uh, it's there's something about the 80s where like the, the ostentatious times uh, we saw this when the coming to America episode as well, where like it's just like, whew, that's a lot. And yes, you have money, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't play like that uh, today. So uh, it is funny, like when uh, Sigourney Weaver walks in the room, like she's she's the apple of everybody's eye. It is quite a di- bit of difference than like if, um, you know, if you were to make that movie today, I think it would just play very differently so it's one of those things where i almost needed little captions on there at times it's just like you know she's she's considered a knockout by all by all measures of this time it's like oh okay yes thank you okay (laughs) thank you i needed that well but i mean do you did you really need that footnote though because i mean she was i mean i think they did a really good job and i mean Catherine did did something different right she was she was an executive but she didn't she dressed like a like a, a very uh, privileged upper class woman, and she had style. Like to your point, um, she had she had style, and she didn't. She wasn't garish or ostentatious at all. She was. She looked. Uh, she looked great. I mean, do you do you think that she would not have been able to be plucked out of uh, you know the eighties and pl- put into some other? Um, well, I'll give I'll give you a for instance. And, uh, and Jack Trainer walks into uh, Tessa's office, or it's actually Catherine's office, but Tessa's sitting behind the desk, and uh, she's got these pink, like really large pink uh, tinted framed glasses with pink tinted lenses, and and uh, it is one of those things where it's just like, it's like I- I'm sorry, can you take those off while we're talking? <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to have a serious yeah, like, conversation it's almost like if i walked in like with groucho glasses and like i've got something very serious to tell you <laughs> so. yeah those 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 large plastic frames were 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 kind of common in the 80s but i think you know you would not uh, yeah i mean that that yes the glasses yeah you got me on that one but i think otherwise Catherine, you know walking into a room you know especially in that opening scene where she comes off the elevator i mean she was regal and she looked really good i think she her look would play in 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 various other uh eras and you're right well. the acting and the directing all reinforce this so i'm not literally saying i need a footnote on there i'm just making a joke of like some of these things that are like oh she's sophisticated now with my large pink glasses <laughs> like it's just like it's like <laughs> yeah that that's a strange call still like <laughs> um but yeah uh soundtrack this is uh mike nichols does what he does in the graduate and he takes a uh, letter river run uh by carly simon and he uses it over and over and over again but effectively uh did you like the soundtrack here kathy yeah and i mean this was you know this is a huge this is this was an anthem right and this was a huge hit for carly simon it resonated with women it was it was just a good song period. I mean, if you like that kind of music, if you're a Carly Simon fan, it, it, it hit all the, all the marks. Honestly, you could go in a lot of worse directions. A lot of 80s movies, to Chad's point earlier, have this ridiculous cheapening synthesizer stuff. I felt like there was... You take that back. <laughs> um, I felt like this was actually, uh, you know, it captured the power 
of those moments of on the ferry and stuff like that that big that big full choir like you know like they needed you to hit you with an you know an emotional you know hit uh, you know we don't want to hear like uh like something the equivalent of like open the door get on the floor everybody doing the dinosaur like i don't i don't need that yeah i mean that's what i meant by i mean it is an 80s woman's anthem i mean it, there's it's not even a song <laughs> you know it's i mean yeah it hit it hit it hit all the marks it was just it was perfect for the movie it was a big hit it's you know i mean heck it's been featured in so many other movies and in fact there was a britney a murphy movie where she was obsessed with carly simon and obsessed with this song and obsessed with working girl <laughs> and it was like her you know her her goals right her, what is it that what are, what do the kids do today vision boards or something yeah you know i mean it was it yeah i mean it, it was it it was iconic this song is iconic and it's it's relationship to this movie is iconic it that's why it won there's no other movie that, or song that could have won the Academy Award for best uh, best movie song because it did everything a movie song was supposed to do. No, it was great. I can't say the same for Lady in Red at the wedding scene. I I, I, I was like, <laughs> can we just tone that down in the background just a, a little bit? Like you're hitting me with it really hard right now. Chad, what about you? That's that's what all the kids in Staten Island were listening to when they did their slow dancing though <laughs> back then. I don't think I want to live in Staten Island in the '80s. That's just <laughs> I, I, you're painting a picture more and more. I don't think that I want to be there at this point. But <laughs> Chad, uh, what, what about you for the soundtrack? Yeah, I mean we should absolutely absolutely go to a male for his opinion on a woman's anthem. Um, <laughs> you know, I I I like the song. Um, Kathy's made me like it better because it's added a lot more meaning for me but uh i wanted more 80s like if we're gonna have a period piece here and i know that's probably not what they were setting out to do but it is it's very 80s i want more of the 80s soundtrack i want you know we heard i'm i'm so excited in the background at one point but i want the synthesizers i want the cheese in there mm. uh, maybe not to the point of spoiling the movie but enough to make russell kind mm. of cranky Okay. Oh, so that's what you, I could figure out what you guys were talking about. So you, so you weren't, you weren't, you were saying that you wanted more of that because it's so bad. It's like, it's so bad. It's good. Is that kind of what you were going Oh, I, I, I enjoy it. Chad, Chad likes this eighties music stuff. Like we have this ongoing thing. It just, you can tell it throughout the episodes of that we've been on in the past. Like I, I don't like the cheesy eighties music. And um, there's other parts of the 80s that I can tolerate. But I mean, the music in particular, sometimes uh, I don't um, I, it, sometimes it'll it'll really hurt a movie, like particularly like a comedy movie or something like that. Like all of a sudden you're hit with this rough music and it continues into the early 90s, too. So, I mean, it's just something of the era. And this movie did not cheapen itself with its music. So Chad and I split <laughs> split on both sides of the fence on this one again. I like this music. It, 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 it has emotional punch and I want punch and I don't I don't want to go. With the, uh, I don't want Duran Duran, but Mike Nichols. Duran Duran improves every mu every movie. Mike Nichols was going to put in Witchy Woman as the opening credits from the Eagles. That would have been great. Cindy <laughs> Cindy Lauper is working on a musical version of Working Girl, so uh, she's coming off of her critically acclaimed Kinky Boots run on Broadway, and so this will be her second musical, and. Uh, I'd see that. I'm excited. So it's not just for Bob's Burgers anymore. Cindy Lauper's getting in the act and actually making a musical for uh, Working Girl. So um, something to look forward to. You mentioned there's only one Tess McGill. 
do you have room in your heart, Kathy, for a Broadway test? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anything but that series. I didn't, like I said, and I could, it could have been, you know, uh, just, yeah. Anything but that series. I think we've got enough, uh, we have enough decades between Melanie Griffith and this uh, revival if it, if it happens. So I'm up for it. Okay. Now, we ready to hand some words? Absolutely. Right. Kathy, give us the honor. Who's your MVP of Working Girl? So with all due respect to my, to my, um, to my Sigourney Weaver and my, my darling, darling Joan Cusack, who stole every scene she was in, this is, this is Melanie Griffith's movie. I, se- I second that. Uh, Chad, what about you? Oh, man. You know me and villains. I went straight for Sigourney Weaver. She's manic. She's conniving. And she's just a fun kind of evil. I really enjoyed her. And I wanted her in more of the scenes. I just, she made me smile every time she was there. Interestingly, she does relish in like the mean thing she's doing. Yeah, my wife didn't like her. She's like, what was up with that weird acting? It's like, no, this is great. And she was nominated for awards. You are wrong. <laughs> well, what about this? What about when she says, well, I am after all me. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's it. She. It was like a channeled Cruella DeVille later on Devil Wears Prada type evil boss. I just, I loved it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh. Meryl Streep took a little bit of influence from this. You never know. Maybe so. Uh, yeah, it's a similar type of role, but yeah. Best Supporting Actor, Kathy. Oh, Joan Cusack. Oh, I love it. I can't say Sigourney Weaver because she's not even really, she's one of the leads. So a Supporting Actor, Joan. My okay, buddy. that's a great choice. And she got nominated as well for, for awards for her performance. And she just, she was absolutely embodied the Staten Island excessiveness for sure. Yes. Chad, who's your best supporting? I went with Philip Bosco's Orrin Trask. I actually thought he was really well cast. He seemed warm, but he still had that authoritative air about him. So his scenes could have gone really poorly, but I thought he did a a great job with them. Great pick. I agree with uh, Kathy, but I am still, I have to give Sigourney Weaver not in some way, shape or form. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying that this is a supporting role and putting her in. She's just such a good villain. Very yes. good villain. So she is. I almost see. I almost felt guilty for not having any awards go to Sigourney, but then she is, after all, her. That's that's why there's three of us. <laughs> we can't feel too sorry for her. Yeah, there's three of us here. We'll 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 collectively give everybody their due, probably. But uh, who's your hidden gem, Kathy? Well, I, I, I'm torn between saying like Olympia Dukakis, just because she's you know. Yes. Light, lightened it for a bit and you know she was i don't know if you guys know even know who olympia dukakis is but back in the 80s she was she was the great character actor right that everybody just loved right um, you know you you might re- know her from like steel magnolias that was a bigger role for her but or or moonstruck but anyway i'm torn between her and alec baldwin but i gotta give it to alec baldwin was she related to michael dukakis yes that's her cousin yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay i did not put all that together so thank you for telling me that one so uh chad who's your hidden gem i think i'm gonna go with kevin spacey who just really went out of his comfort zone to play a sexual predator <laughs> <laughs> see I, I i'm so glad somebody is gonna pick kevin spacey for this one yeah in, in reality though i mean they called him and like he learned his lines on the way over to rehearsal like the guy that was initially cast for bob speck just backed out so kevin spacey to save the day, I guess. He was a good actor. There's no doubt about it. So I mean, was he acting? <laughs> I don't mean in this role, but I mean the fact that he could come in and put it all together that fast. Uh, that doesn't honestly surprise me. But it is a that is a good choice. 
I'm gonna make Brian Fry a happy guy because he just loves this guy, Oliver Platt. Yeah. By who played Lutz, uh, who was a sleazoid pimp, and uh, That's right. he just really did embody that. Recasts now. If you had to take somebody in the movie and put somebody else in their place, who would it be, Kathy? I could say I could probably, if I had another minute, come up with a, a couple of other better known actors who would have done a good job with the Trask role, probably. Yeah. Okay. Think think about that, uh, Chad. How about you? Who are you recasting? I'm just I'm still stunned that there were awards that Harrison Ford didn't get from you, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm recasting Joan Cusack. Sorry, Kathy. With Catherine Hahn. She'd be too young for this movie, but maybe in the remake, I think Catherine Hahn would be a great Cindy. I love Catherine Hahn, but uh, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I really liked this cast, and I had a hard time finding somebody that I could recast. So I just did it just to do it. I thought uh, Marissa Tomei would step in for Joan Cusack. Perhaps, well, there's only a mm. two years difference between the two of them, and I think uh, they're both awesome. So I, you know, replacing one awesome actor with another awesome actor, so... Uh, do you think about who you'd put in Trask's spot, Kathy? Well, I mean, you know, and I, I, some somebody fun like a uh, Bob Hoskins maybe okay. would have been a, would would have brought a fun little element to to Trask. But uh, you know, not to say that uh, Philip uh, Bosco. I'm not saying he didn't do a great job. I'm just you know, I, we could have had some fun with that. I kinda, yeah, I kind of want to hear someone like J.K. Simmons go. You're fired. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. He would, he was, is he too young for that? But that's actually a good, that's a good backup choice too. (laughs) Best shot of the movie, Kathy. I mean, I, you know, again, and I don't know if I'm saying this just because I feel like, you know, Sigourney Weaver just was elegant and commanding and just gorgeous in the 80s, you know, notwithstanding the decade. But when she burst into the conference room at Trask Industries. Nice. With her. Yeah tall gorgeousness and the and the, the crutch and the broken leg and she still looked awesome yeah she I almost took I, out that person at the door yeah. <laughs> yeah just everything about that just the visual she's tall she has a commanding presence you're right she, yeah. she sure does and she's beautiful and yeah and just the way she was dressed everything now chad best shot for you i'm going the opposite direction with sigourney weaver and it was just this Looney Tunes type shot, and it's the lingering shot after Catherine has her accident. I thought it was really comedic and well done that they just stayed on this dead air as you hear her scream in the background, just, ah! (laughs) (laughs) It it reminded me very much of Wile E. Coyote falling off a cliff. I did get a good laugh out of that. So that's a great, that's a great pick there. That was a good one, yeah. I'm going to go with Tess on the ferry early in the movie as she's studying while she's coming home. I love This shows the hardworking backbone that the character's coming from. And I could have picked any number of ferry scenes, as we've mentioned many times <laughs> on this. But this one, this one to me shows that she's, she's studying it late at night while coming home. And like she gives everything she has into making it. That captures the character for me. And a close runner-up for the wedding scene when she's dancing with Oren Trask and the camera's spinning and you're changing which face you see as to which who's talking. It's really well done. The conversation is flowing there. And as she's kind of taking him for a dance and she's like leading him and guiding him to be able to get another meeting so that they can be heard at the high, higher level. So I thought the camera work reinforced what the characters were doing really strongly there. I'm actually glad you brought that up because of all the scenes, you know, that one was the one 
that whole wedding, not just that one scene, but the whole, the whole wedding concept of them kind of crashing his daughter's wedding, it walked a fine line. It could have been hokey and, and unbelievable and dumb. But, you know, because, I mean, really, how are you going to go in and get a meeting with this guy at his daughter's wedding and not get caught? But it, they, they pulled it off. And that scene, that one where they were dancing that you just mentioned, was a big reason why that, that whole concept of crashing the wedding worked in a movie that was, you know, didn't have those kinds of sort of implausible you know, scenes like that. It had a good moment too when Harrison Ford realizes, oh crap, we're not invited. And he grabs two drinks and yes. quickly <laughs> takes one out and then takes another one out. Well, and I love everything about that scene because, you know, again, and I have, you know, Harrison Ford is just, I mean, my God, we all, we all, this is Harrison Ford's world and we're just living in it. Right. So, you know, we didn't get any awards from us, but I mean, let's just take a moment to just say how just awesome Harrison Ford is. But I think the scene where, you know, he's, he's panicked, right? So he's just like sucking down this cocktail and you can just see all the women around him just swooning because that's just what he was. He was, he was Mr. Swoon. He was getting looks at the wedding. I noticed that on my second watch. Oh, I, was, I yeah. was like, all the ladies were like, Ooh. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's that if that doesn't say all it all you need to say about Harrison Ford. I mean, and he could just go up to a woman he had never seen before and say, like, don't break my heart by not dancing with me. She didn't even think twice. She was powerless. She was powerless. She wasn't even like, I don't know you. Powerless. It doesn't matter. It's like, <laughs> it's like, don't care about your name. Yes. Going to dance. Yep. <laughs> that's right. Doesn't matter who you are. Powerless. Now, best scene in the movie, Kathy. I love the release that came from after they got back from their initial pitch meeting with, you know, Trask was listening in. Oh, how does he know? He knows everything. Um, I love, I love the release of them running down the stairs and just, oh, like we did it. And by the way, I love you. And how that sort of stairs scene sort of segued nicely into their, the, the romance part of the movie. Yeah, um, just... I liked that. And I loved the scene with, at the end with her, her secretary. If you don't mind, I prefer assistant um, because there's triumph there. And, but I think probably too, actually, you know, I take all of that back. Those are great scenes, but I think my favorite scene is when Jack didn't hesitate to say, in front, you know, facing basically the end of his career. And, you know, this is the guy who, what, 30, 30, 40 minutes prior was talking about the little pieces of tape on the phone and, you know, how, you know, how you can, you can lose everything in a second. One bad deal is all it takes. And in the face of all of that, he stood across from, you know, the elevator, basically knowing that he was going to, you know, he was kissing his career goodbye. And he said, no, I, I will not turn my back on her. This is her deal. That's my favorite scene. That's a great one. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. a great one. Chad, what about you? Best scene? We covered it extensively, but the wedding crashing scene, just Jack being nervous, but buying in and getting that information to help Tess out and the way she's manipulating the room as well. I just like that before they weren't really sure of each other, but all of a sudden there's just buy-in and they start, they become a team. That's a great choice there. I like the scene where, so Tess... Tess is mad that she was sent to a fake meeting, which wouldn't turn out to be a hookup. And she came back to David Lutzen and we've mentioned it a couple of times, but she wrote David Lutz is a sleazoid pimp with a tiny little penis on the jumbo crawl. And everybody at the office yes. is laughing. I just love people who don't take crap off of other people. And you know, you're going to get the upper hand. You think you've got authority on me and you think you can make me look bad, but it just, 
there's something that's so I don't know. It's just very punk rock. I love I love this character, and the, whether it be crashing weddings again, breaking the rules to doing what needs to be done. Yeah, I loved all of that. I really I really like this character. So that to me, right off the bat, made me sit there and go like, yeah. I'm 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 in. Like I'm you got me hooked. Let's see where this is going. So yeah that's actually a good point because it was it was in the beginning it's it set the stage it, yeah i agree it's a wonderful scene in in that it was just satisfactory you know it was, it's satisfying because he was a prick a pimp sleazy and it was satisfying in that respect and it was also perfect to set the stage for what we could expect from the character yeah now best wardrobe and makeup moment it's hard to narrow it down this one <laughs> kathy what is your favorite moment it's not even leather not even le- it's not even leather that's yeah. really great perfect. especially after we see the chandelier perfect. come down and they're like why does it do that <laughs> <laughs> for cleaning oh <laughs> yeah now chad uh best wardrobe and makeup moment yep same thing i her dress at the party scene Yep. All right. And I'm going to go with Joan Cusack's 80s hair and eyeshadow like in earrings. I mean, uh, if, if there was a human being that literally most resembled of a morph between a peacock and a human, this is this is it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, change one thing. Kathy. I want to see her do something evil to Mick. Something just like some kind of not. I don't want to change the course of what happened eventually, because I do think that it, it demonstrated what what women were basically expecting from dudes that they might meet in oh, Staten right. Island. That's in her character to say, like, I'm not taking this crap. You're right. She's right. a lot more kind to something. him of just like, you know, like, I wish you hadn't done that is kind of the tone. Yeah, something that something like what she did to Lutz. Just sneak that in there just for our satisfaction and then keep everything the same. Put a hole in his boat. Yeah, I don't know if we need to, I don't know if we need to go full Carrie Underwood on this boat, but I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know, but that's a great point. I, 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 I that's, that's a good one. Uh, Chad, what about you? What's your change one thing? I think you've got to move Harrison Ford to the couch after that drunken night. Like, you can't call him a gentleman while having him sleep, at least shirtless. He might have been naked, we don't know, next to a passed out drunk woman. Like, that seemed a little too far. Like, So you need the Roman holiday treatment where Gregory Peck is a total gentleman to Audrey Hepburn then? Yes. Yeah. Like not even touching her, flipping the mattress. So she goes onto the bunk. Yeah. That was a great scene in Roman holiday, but yeah. Well, actually he wasn't a total gentleman. You're right. He put her on the, uh, you're right. He put her on the couch <laughs> and he took the bed for himself. And then she woke up. She's like, where was I? He's like, I put you in the bed. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I couldn't tell if he was naked or shirtless, but that's just weird. Like, yeah. Go to, go to the couch, dude. All right. All right. And my change one thing is, you know what? I think you've talked me out of it because the excessiveness of Staten Island, I had written down big hair, but you know what? <laughs> I, I, I think I might back off my point on that one now. Yeah. Pink glasses. That's my new thing. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But in, but can I just, and can I just add to that if I may on Catherine, yeah. the big glasses, the big reading glasses on Catherine, because on tests you could, you're just like, Oh, they were probably left over. You know, she didn't have time to get, you know, fancy, you know, elegant glasses. But on Catherine, it seemed weird. There's an easy flow chart for this. Is your name Elton John? Yes, you can wear those glasses. No? No. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's uh, That diagram needs to be drawn up. Um, best, quote, best quote of the movie, Kathy. Can I give you a runner up? You can get an odd, yeah. Yeah, so the runner-up is, of course, the one that a lot of people uh, talk about. I have a, a, a head for business and a bod for sin. Um, another runner-up is uh, the people talk a lot about is sin when she said, look, you know, I can sing or, I can sing and dance in my house in my underwear all day long. Doesn't make me Madonna, never will. But my favorite 
was when Harrison Ford, you know, they were at that little meeting, you know, business meet and greet cocktail party. And he said, when I knew when we met, we would drink tequila. <laughs> yeah. It was so smooth. Right. And you, and he's, he's ad-libbing, you know, he's making this stuff up as he goes along. And that's how he got her to take a shot with him. All right. Yeah. Now Chad, very smooth. What about you? Best quote? Going with the Sigourney Weaver quote, Tess, you know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. Well, she took her advice on that one. So that's a very good foreshadowing on that. So I'm going to go with uh, Mick being like, Tess, will you marry me? And she just goes, maybe. And uh, he's like, I think I deserve an answer. And she's like, (laughs) if you want another answer, ask another girl. Yeah, burn. There you go. Just picturing Ashton Kutcher. Burn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I hate the character of Mick so much. So, but uh, I didn't. Yeah. So that 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 to me was that to me was the uh, the uh, um. But you're right. It wasn't. Uh, she she held back comparatively what she did in the rest of her life uh, for sure. So Kathy, one more recommendation for where we can hear more from you in the very near future. I'm I'm about to drop a podcast so this is gonna your this podcast is gonna go live i think in in time for valentine's day later on this spring i'm gonna drop my podcast and uh it'll be called the uh, national trumpeter i am the national trumpeter and i advocate for mental health awareness exploring the, the complexities of human human behavior for the betterment of all of us so keep your eye out for that uh where you find podcasts very exciting uh, it's ambitious, and I like what you're doing there. So it's, I'm hope you hope you spread some good information with that one. So, yeah, and it's going to be a lot of just a lot of dialogue about uh, you know what what how we can do better with what we observe coming from our fellow man. All right, now this is the big climax here on a five star scale, half star intervals. Kathy, what would you give Working Girl? It's a five star movie for me. Yeah. All right, and Chad, what about you? I'm going to go with a three star. I enjoyed it. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry. You're, you're tough. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I I like less less heavy themes, but it was a good movie, and I'd recommend it. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna go with a 4.5 on this one. I you probably can tell I just was a big fan of this movie, and um, I will be watching this one again in the future. I just like underdog stories, and before it's anything else, I to me it's a first and foremost an underdog story. Very nice. Chad, do you want me to help me pick a movie for next time? I would love to, sir. We're going to go right up your aisle here with post-apocalyptic dystopian futures. So Excellent. Yeah. Uh, option number one, Brazil from 1985. A bureaucratic in a dystopic society becomes an enemy of the state as he pursues a woman of his dreams. Option two, Blade Runner from 1982. A Blade Runner must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. Option three, A Clockwork Orange from 1971. In a future, sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion experiment, but it doesn't go as planned. How can you not choose Blade Runner here? It's got to be Blade Runner. All right. Double helping of Harrison Ford. I will never argue that. Yeah, can't go wrong. Hey, no, no one will, right? February is Harrison Ford month. Uh, I would sign up. Yes, keep that going. Yes. So he's never had a bad movie. Four, forty days and forty nights. Six days, seven nights, Chad. He's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah, different movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that scene in Fanboys. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so thank you, Kathy, for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on the show. You're a great guest. Yes, thank you. I loved chatting with you guys about my movie, my favorite movie from the 80s. Thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We do want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Those ratings and reviews help make the show better and help get us out to other people, so that's the number one thing you can do to help the show. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at uh, Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. We're on Instagram. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page. And we always thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't?